0: are here without wanting to state the obvious. You are here and uh, you ought to stop and think about that. We don't stop to consider the fact that we exist. Um, We just seem to get on with doing it. But when you stop and think about it, it is amazing that we exist at all, isn't it? I mean, when you think of uh, the question, what are you? You're made up of trillions of atoms, mostly oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, a few of their elemental pals, that are usually happy enough to exist independently, but conveniently congregate to make you, you. It's pretty amazing that we exist. And not even when you think of who you are and what you're made of, but think of where we are. I mean, you're on a planet that's currently spinning at 1,000 miles an hour as it travels 67,000 miles an hour around a star, okay? Now, the world is moving so fast, you are literally at this very moment being sucked into your seat. It's quite cool, isn't it? That's why at the end of the day you get so tired, you give in to gravity, you just lie down and have a sleep. Now, the question, of course, then when we're thinking about our existence, about what we're made of and where we're situated on this spinning globe, tiny in terms of the vastness in which it's suspended, we can ask the question, for how long are we going to be in this state? I mean, whether you're looking at life through a telescope or a microscope, our environment is said to be as, well, as biochemically and as cosmologically precarious as it could possibly be, so that the tiniest variation in something so totsy as DNA or something so vast as stellar space could actually undo us in no time. Happy Sunday. But uh, most often the question that's asked when we think about our existence is, how? How did we come into existence? How did it happen? Where did it all come from? And actually, it's true to say that millions of people all over the world are asking this question. I mean, you only have to look at the sales figures of books over the last 20 to 30 years to see how much people are interested in this. Like Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens, Bill Bryson's commentary on. Uh, science, a short history of nearly everything, and especially Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. There seem to be tons of people round the table, joining in the discussion, but in this day and age, they seem to be mostly made up of naturalists. Naturalists who believe that matter, stuff, the things that we're made of, the things that things are made of, that's really all that matters. Occasionally, there might be one or two supernaturalists around the table who pipe up and say there's more to life than meets the eye. But neither of those satisfy me. I wonder if they satisfy you. I mean, taking the naturalists, for example, their so-called scientific explanation isn't really without its problems. The fact, or their belief, that life spontaneously came from non-life remains one of the great unexplained, albeit easily disprovable, assumptions underlying the very cent- central principles of their whole ism. Naturalism. Time. Plus matter. Matter. Plus a healthy dose of chance equals all this. Doesn't sound very scientific to me. Does it sound scientific to you? Bryson, of course, commentating on this naturalist view too, so deftly and swiftly damns any view of a creator, of course, but he talks so confidently of all matter, including me and you, emerging from this infinitesimably compact singularity, a pregnant, though non-existent, dot, that in a moment of glory, he uses the word glory to describe this, assumes the heavenly or vast dimensions of reality, space beyond comprehension, and all in the time it takes you to make a jam sandwich. Still left with a why question, though. Even if you're left with a how question. There is another voice around the table, and it's the voice of Genesis. Genesis. Now, some people would say, oh, come off it. Genesis. And God said, and it was so. Really? Genesis. Well, it's a voice that's stifled or drowned out. But actually, if we're going to be intellectually honest with integrity, Genesis should in itself be given a hearing and honest science, given the chance to testify to the very real possibility that there is a maker. And there is actually meaning and purpose in life. Now, before I delve into the ins and outs of Genesis 1, I have to say a couple of things about Genesis as a whole, because this isn't a sermon series just on Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It's on all 50 chapters. And in about three years, we might be done, but we'll see how we go. Now, I want to tell you that as we approach Genesis, now these are the important questions you've got to ask of this or else you'll be confused all the way through, okay? This is not a book that's primarily written about how things came to be. It's definitely not going to be a book that answers all your questions about dinosaurs, age of the earth and so on. I brought a book just to show you something. This is one of the books on uh, actually Paul Reese's bookshelf uh, that I borrowed. I'll put it back, I promise. And uh, about debating the issue of just one argument of theistic evolution, just one aspect of the debate. Give away at the end of the night, maybe? No, I better not do that. I better not do that. Don't worry. Don't worry. I won't. I won't. Okay? So it's not. There are so many books, and I'm going to give you a pointer of some books to go away and read on these particular subjects because they're not irrelevant questions. Not inappropriate questions. It's perfectly right to delve into these passages and look for clues, look for evidence, and so on. But Genesis as a whole is primarily about God what he's done, what he's doing, how mankind, us, fit into the story. And it's absolutely foundational to every single thing that we believe as Christians. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you're so welcome. I'm really glad you're here. Um, Pin back your ears and listen closely. Jot down any questions you've got, maybe on the sermon sheet. And even if you hand them to me at the end of the night with an email address, I'd love to be in touch with you just to answer those. Or come and chat, speak to someone at the Connect Corner afterwards. Uh, These are big questions. And uh, if you've got any questions to ask in response, I'd love to hear them. Well, this book is, of course, a place where, as I say, you can turn to it for answers about those kind of questions about creation. But first and foremost, it's a book about God. It begins with him creating the universe, and it ends with him promising a people that he has chosen that he's going to rescue them from slavery. So it starts so broad and ends with a family. It narrows right down. And actually, it's written at the time between Israel's escape from Egypt and entry into Canaan, the promised land. And because of that, you've got to ask, what is the purpose of the book? Why has God given it to his people at that particular point in time? The answer, I think, is actually quite simple. What has God just done as he's delivered the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt? What were the ten plagues all about if they weren't ten rounds of a boxing match? God getting into the ring... And knocking out every single idol that the Egyptians put their hope in for all sorts of different things. And what is it that the Israelites are going to face as they go into the promised land? What is the thing that Moses is going to warn them about, that Joshua warned them about afterwards? What's going to derail the whole thing and threaten the plan of salvation? It's idols. So God is essentially underlining from Genesis 1 to 50 there is only one God who created all these other things that people are tempted to worship material stuff things don't do it I am I'm God there is no other so with all of that in mind you'll then understand the shape of the book chapters 1 to 11 are this very concise report of what's called primeval history, covering a few thousand years and a few pages, so it's not claiming to be a science textbook. And then chapters 12 to 50 are about patriarchal history, where the whole story just slows right down and zooms right in to cover about 500 years' worth of the family lineage of a guy called Abraham. And it's a phenomenal journey. And please keep coming back. But why are we here? Why is our experience so frustrating? Loving one minute of life and hating the next. Smiling and laughing one minute and absolute floods of tears the next. What do we need? This is what Genesis tells us. So let's dive in. Let's start at the beginning. Genesis 1 verse 1. I'm going to take this in uh, three slices tonight as your sermon sheet will show. So track along with me if you can. We're going to start with verse 1 and the God who is there. The God who is there. Look again with verse 1. Look at how much God reveals about himself in a few words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're going to pause there. Think about what this shows us. The first thing I want us to see in this is it shows us that we're talking about a particular God. This is the name Elohim that's used there, a name that's frequently used for God in the Old Testament. 35 times he's mentioned in this one chapter alone. And he is the same God who makes himself known throughout the Bible. He's not like your neighbors, keeping themselves to themselves. He introduces himself again and again in lots of different ways, disclosing much more about himself than we've got even in here in the Bible. And of course, from what we learn from that image of himself, Jesus, his son, the word who became flesh he enables us then to grasp who it is that we're talking to, who it is that's talking to us, what it is about God that makes him knowable, and what it is about God that makes him love. Genesis 1 is talking about a particular God, Elohim, Israel's God, our God, if you trust in Jesus Christ. The second thing we see in this first verse is that we're talking about a pre-existent God. I mean, God was there before anything else came into being. It's the only thing that makes that sentence rational. He is eternally self-existent. There was never a time when he did not exist, nor will there ever be in the future. And the psalmist says, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, that's Psalm 90, verse 2. It tells us he comes before everything including people like us. And what that necessitates in us in terms of application as we approach this study is humility. So we're talking about a particular God, Elohim, a pre-existent God, existed before all of us, and we're talking about a powerful God. What did God do according to verse 1? Created. The heavens and the earth. In other words, everything in its totality. Now, some of us here are artistic, some are good at DIY. You may even be an inventor. Now, we sometimes call the things that we make creations, but they're not really created, actually. They're, better to use the words, manufactured in the sense that they're made from something that already exists. But the great claim of chapter 1 and chapter 2 is that God is making something out of nothing, whether it's microscopic mitochondria or distant nebulas. What phenomenal power in this God, who, as we see throughout the chapter, simply speaks. He's not fumbling with pipettes and petri dishes. He's not writing a report of the 345th lab failure before finally cracking it. Oh, now we can write Genesis 1 verse 1. God does it in one go. With no effort. The God who in Exodus calls himself I am says in Genesis 1, let there be an existence is. It's utterly mind-blowing. Yet, fundamentally rational. He is the particular, preexistent, powerful God who is there, and he is the God who creates. This is point two, the God who creates. Let's dig into this a little bit uh, deeper. So verse one essentially sets the stage for us, and verse two gets us ready for the coming arrangement. Verse two tells us that the earth... Um, that God created was at first formless and empty and the Holy Spirit is poised kind of like a kingfisher ready to uh, dive into its prey, ready to go to work. The Holy Spirit ready to go to work to form and to fill the earth and that's exactly what we see God doing in verses 3 to 31. Forming and filling on days 1, 2, and 3, God forms the heavens and the earth. And on days 4, 5, and 6, God fills these spaces. And I don't want you to miss the shape of this and how it all matches up. Because what is formed in days 1, to 3, we've got light, waters, above and below. So sky and sea, land, veggies and plants, those kind of things. And it's like a stage, but there are no actors yet. It's a setting. But here come the actors in verses 4 to 6. Filling the stage, you have the luminaries, lights to rule the day and tonight to govern, birds and fish to populate the sky and sea and encourage to multiply, animals and then humans in day 6 to fill the earth. Now, don't take that last combination and associate it with a guy like Yuval Harari's assertion. His assertion that humanity is scientifically some kind of animal, albeit a cleverer sort. Now look at the difference in God's estimation. In verse 25, how does he respond to or evaluate the creation of animals? It says, and God saw that it was good. Now look at verse 31 with the addition of humankind. And what's God's evaluation? Very good. Don't tell me there's no difference very good. And here's where we see humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation. Not just a random collocation of atoms. Not just time plus matter plus chance equals humans. It's not. They are the Humankind is the pinnacle of God's creation, not because of the number of them. starts with one. If it was down to sheer quantity, bacteria would be the pinnacle of God's creation. But he doesn't look at bacteria and say, this is very good. But it's not. They're good, by the way. It's the quality. It's a specific feature called the image of God in humanity. Now, nothing else that God has made can be said to be made in his image, except humankind. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over, well, basically everything there, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, what is the big deal with this image thing? What is it? Some folks struggle to put their finger on exactly what it's talking about, but think about images. What does an image do? It images something, right? It it images something. The city of Edinburgh put up a statue or an image of Thomas Chammers on George Street. And what's the point of it? Well, it's to image the one it represents and stir everybody's thoughts to remembrance. And I would argue that's why God has made us in his image. I think he has deliberately started with this man and woman, but encouraged them to populate the earth. Where at present, he's deliberately filled the earth with seven billion image bearers. 7 billion 45 degree angled mirrors if you like that are supposed to be reflecting the glory and the image of God to each other it's just that sin gets in the way of that flips the mirror clouds it shatters it so that we don't or else even as Christians portray a broken image Now, not everyone acknowledges this fact, of course, that that we're all made in the image of God. Not everybody can say, oh, as I look at you, I can see God. No, Romans 1 tells us exactly why, though. says, though everyone sees it, people suppress the truth by their wickedness and choose not to acknowledge it. Romans 1 then says that all are without excuse. No one can say at the end, I didn't know. You existed. You've got no right to judge me. I didn't know. No one can say that. Now I don't have time to go into all the implications of this. And hopefully in two weeks time. It's going to be brought out in Genesis chapter 2. But I want to say. Just briefly in terms of application. That this is. This. Made in the image of God. Humanity being this pinnacle. Treasured by God. Given a special place. It's the reason why at the very heart of a Christian's concern for, we have a, a heart for all of humanity, not just for fellow Christians. So we speak out against oppression and racism because those people who are being oppressed or racially abused are made in God's image. We speak out lovingly, but as clearly as we can about gender and sexuality we speak up for those who can't whether it's the seriously ill on life support or the unborn who are never given a chance to image God outside of the womb though they wonderfully image him inside in other words Genesis 1 26 and 27 tell us that all life matters all life matters. And though that image remains, it is in a sense broken like a shattered or dirty mirror. And that's precisely, friends, why Jesus had to come. The image of the invisible God as we read in the New Testament, the one who perfectly reflects the glory of God to the creation all around us so that when we look at him, we can say, I see God. Indeed, he was deity But we have that double insight, seeing the son. And as he said himself plenty of times in John's gospel, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Wow. That is why if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. People like me, people like your friends are often talking to you about Jesus. You've got to look at Jesus. You've got to think about who he is. He's an historical person. You can't take that away from him. You've got to then put your eyes on him and watch what he did and hear what he said and figure out, is he who he says he is? Because he's either completely lost it or he's the son of God. And your very decision on which is which matters more than you realize. Jesus has said, whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. So there's nothing to stop you. And Jesus indeed has invited us. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You'll find rest for your souls in me. To believe in me, he said, is to believe in the one who sent me. And you can have life in his name. Talk to someone about that. Grab a bulletin from one of the stewards on the way out. There's a little prayer on the back. You can even just talk to God about that without talking to anybody here. Talk to God about that, saying, sorry for your sin thanking him for Jesus being sent to be our savior and asking him to help you live a new life. There's nothing like it. So that when you put your faith and trust in him, the truth of 1 Corinthians 15 is true for us. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Jesus. So God forms and fills the earth by effortless spe- effortless speech. It's good, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's very good. And then what? Thirdly, the God who rests. Verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. Now, don't misunderstand that word rest. We need to rest whenever we're out of puff, right? tired out but God doesn't get tired his hands aren't sore his voice isn't hoarse look with me verses 1 to 3 though thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array by the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing so on the seventh day he rested from all his work then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done So what is this resting? What is this seventh day Sabbath thing that God is doing? Well, his resting involves two things primarily. Enjoying his creation. He's enjoying it. There are plenty of hints throughout the creation account that God is enjoying himself. I mean, day after day, he evaluates the work. It's good, he says. And then that's the repeated refrain. And then with his image bearers in place, like I've said, it's very good. Now, what are you doing when you say something's good? You're not just evaluating it. You're enjoying it, and you're expressing that. I got a new light from my dining room on Gumtree recently, and uh, I put it up, I turned it on, I, I, I stood back, I marveled that it was actually on, and then I stood back and I looked at it in the room, and I was like, ah, oh, that looks good. Now, that's an expression not just of the fact that I've done something, although that is commendable if you would ask my wife, but it's, uh, it is, it is, it's just that it looks good. I'm evaluating it. It's a valued judgment. This is, this is precious. This is class. I'm enjoying this. And that's what God's doing. He's ceasing from, now notice this, his creating work. He's not stopped working. He's not stopped keeping the earth turning, as Jesus said before the Sanhedrin. Before the religious leaders, when they're criticizing him for healing a man on the Sabbath, he's like, my father's at work still to this very day. But this is the creation work. God's done his work, and everything is, he's sustaining it still. Through the agency of Jesus the Son. Upholding everything by his powerful word. But what is he doing at this point of creating? He's enjoying it. He loves it and especially us because through those little image bearers that he has made will come a savior. Jesus who takes on the flesh to image gods. He's looking at it and he's loving it. But the other thing that we see him doing in verses one to three is as he ceases from this creating work is that he is ruling. Now as he rests, he's enjoying it on an ongoing basis. There's plenty that displeases him, and he's working that great reversal to, with Jesus at the heart of that. But God is ruling over this creation. Now you've noticed of course there was a rhythm to Genesis 1 and God said and there was God saw that it was good and there was evening and the morning the whatever day six times you see that repeated rhythm. Now the seventh day the day of rest has no end. There's no refrain at the end of it. There's no and there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. It's not there. No instead God is still ruling over this day. It's still the day of God's Sabbath, if you like. Not creating, it's still the day of God's enjoyment of his creation and his work within all that he has made. Now, what's he doing with it? There are two things in this section. He's blessing it and he's making it holy. Blessing it. In other words, God makes this time holy spiritually fruitful, still in the business of making himself known to people who don't know him or even those who dismiss him. It's still a day of multiplication, fruitfulness in the earth in physical terms and in spiritual terms. And the second thing, he's made it holy. In other words, he set this age, this time, apart for himself. So don't think that word holy necessarily means perfect because you're like it's definitely not perfect yeah we know and God knows that but what he's saying is I've set this time apart not only to set some time apart from creating but to set some time towards devoting that's what sanctification is That's what our sanctification is. It's not just being set, that's what holiness is, just not being just set apart from sin. It's being set apart from sin and devoted to God. It's active in both ways. And God is saying the very same thing about creation. I'm in my Sabbath, I'm set apart from the work of creating, but I'm devoted to my own glory and goods. Through working in the world. So the implication for all of us then. Is that we ought to live for his glory. Every day. Every minute of every single day. Every day is to be lived in devotion to God. And the question is. Are we? I've spoken to those of you who are not Christians. It's another question for you. Are you living in devotion to God? It matters in this day and age. And it will matter in the days to come. But what about those of us who are Christians? Do you know, even if you've gone cold on him, and you feel quite lackluster in your heart, And you're thinking, do you know what? I'm actually preferring the idols of the day. I'm not heeding the lessons of Genesis. And I'm running after all the things. Might not be worshipping the sun gods. Or gods of fertility. But actually I really like my stuff. And I think I love my children more than I love Jesus. And all sorts. It could be anything. This is a challenge to us. But it's also an invitation to us. Because God encourages people like us who've been lukewarm to recognize we're lukewarm but he invites us to come and repent under his welcoming grace. And start from now to reset things where we live primarily not for us, a created thing but for the God who created all things. The one, the very one Who's given us breath? What a chapter. What insight. Sure, you'll have questions. Ask away. But don't go away without responding. So do you think Genesis one should have a voice at the table now? Do you think that we could intellectually engage with real integrity? on the matter of a designer behind all the things that we experience or exist in? Will you marvel that you are here to the extent that you will worship him, even as we were singing, let all things their creator bless and worship him in humbleness. Oh praise him. He is the God who is there. The God who creates. The God who rests. The God who is worthy to receive glory. And honor and power. For he created all things. And by his will they were created. And today. Today and for as long as he wills have their being. Let's bow our heads together. Why don't you take the next minute or two, just reflect on something that struck you in the sermon, whether it's something to think over, something to pray about, might be a prayer of repentance, might be a prayer for God to show you more, might be a prayer for courage, to explore it more. Take the next minute or two to respond And then we'll stand and sing together.